I am so excited to invite you to one of the biggest online autism events for 2019, the Autism Summit. You'll find it at autismsummit.com.au. Many people still think that routine is where you want to go. It's not. You stay with the same thing and do it over and over again. You do not progress. Talk to adults with autism and I say, okay, guys, what are your greatest challenges? Is it the sensory? Is it the social? Is it getting a job or a relationship? And they nearly always say, no, it's none of those, Tony. It's managing my anxiety. The behaviour is always, always a byproduct of what is going on in the brain. So if the child is dysregulated, it tells us something about their brain. It doesn't tell us that we need to help them manage their behaviours. The differences between autistic and non-autistic communication are significant. And I always say there's a different language. I say there's a, a cultural difference more than anything else. So it's not that we're doing anything wrong, but we do do things differently. And to understand that is really important. Their social skills don't have to be neatly wrapped up by 18. That's, that's not real. Sometimes this area is about expectations. We're not trying to create social butterflies. We're trying to create people who have some confidence. I now insist that it be done the other way around. You interview the principal. What will you do in this scenario? What's the support look like? Because the funding exists, they do access it, and it needs to be funneled or channeled towards your child. But if we've got stuff happening in our gut and it's affecting our brain through those toxins, we can't work on our language and we can't work on our social skills. Everyone needs to either avoid processed food or learn how to read the new deliberately confusing food labels that are changing all the time. Firstly, tolerate the food and then be able to interact with it, which might mean poking it with a fork or touching it with another food. Welcome to the Online Autism Summit. I am so glad you're here. Whether you're new to the world of autism or if you've been here for a little while now, we have so much for you to explore. You need to get out your calendars and mark it in there straight away because it will be live streaming and free to access from the first to the 5th of April. And if you don't know already, this will be during Autism Awareness Week. Now, I have gathered together 20 leading world experts, extraordinary parents, as well as people on the spectrum. And we cover a whole range of topics that are relevant to every child with autism, including behaviors, anxiety, sensory processing, diet and lifestyle. We look at school and homeschooling, employment, and different kinds of therapy and really just so much more. It is this beautiful space where people are coming together with different perspectives and sharing their knowledge and their stories. And you will leave feeling absolutely empowered and inspired. Now you do have the option of being able to purchase lifetime access to these 20 interviews at really cheap early bird prices. So that is if you purchase before April. When you purchase the summit, you're able to pause and take notes. You can rewind and you can watch the interviews in your own time. You also get access to special NDIS interviews that you can't watch during the free, um, during the free summit period. Now, if you are listening to this podcast sometime in the future, don't stress 
the Autism Summit will continue to live on and be available at autismsummit.com.au. I cannot wait to see you there. Please check it out. Head over, have a look at the welcome video that we've created. It is amazing and it just really sums up what we are trying to do and that is really bring this autism community together. So autismsummit.com.au. Welcome to Homebase Hope, all about autism, the show that invites you to think differently, inspires you to take a whole child approach, and most of all, instills hope when it comes to your child and autism. I'm your host, Rhiannon Crisp, from homebasehope.com.au. Let's get into it. Hey guys, how are you going? I am so glad that you're joining me today because A lot of you have been asking for a podcast on picky eating. So today we are talking all about fussy eaters and how to kick picky eating habits to the curb. I am talking to Ashley Thurn, who is a pediatric occupational therapist and picky eating specialist based in Florida. Ashley has a background in sensory related pediatric feeding issues and is passionate about exploring how food and environmental factors impact brain development brain development, especially for children with autism and ADHD. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. Absolutely. Love your podcast so much. (laughs) Uh, We have been meaning to connect now for so long now, so it's so awesome to have you on here and speaking about something that you are really passionate about. So can't wait for all the juicy content that's going to come out in today's episode. Um, before we dive into it all, I, we always rewind a little bit. So I'd love to learn about your journey and how you became so passionate about working with families and particularly kids who are fussy eaters. Yeah. So, um, so I started, so I've been working as an OT for quite a long time, about 10 years. Um, and about two and a half years ago, I started my blog, helpinghandsot.com. Um, and at first, when I first started it, I started just to, um, one, sort of just vent about, you know, ADHD and how, you know, it's becoming this huge epidemic and how it's overdiagnosed and a lot of it um, is environmental. Um, but also the other reason that I started it was just to um, use what I know as an OT to just help moms with different topics in parenting. Like um, I've written a lot on um, potty training and just help with tantrums and um, lots and lots now on picky eating. And how I got involved in uh, pediatric feeding and all of that is really through issues that I was having with my own um, son, my first child, um, even with this background with sensory integration and all that I knew with that, um, we started to have issues with him just becoming a picky eater. And I just wanted to learn more about picky eating uh, or in general, just uh, pediatric feeding. So I took some courses and I was blown away with the information that I um, gained in these courses. and. I just went from a point of being extremely stressed over just mealtime. Um, and you know, whenever my son would refuse to eat foods to just like 
having a plan and having just, I had so many light bulb moments during those courses where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm doing everything wrong. And, um, and so I just wanted to use what I learned um, in my training to just help other parents because it can be really frustrating and extremely stressful um, when your kid's not eating and, um, you know, you know that they're supposed to eat, be eating this wide variety of foods and you know um, that they're supposed to be eating all these fruits and vegetables and uh, yeah, so that's really, and then this year uh, I've been really trying to focus my writing and my blog more on what I love the most. And I really like, like you had said already, um, nutrition and how it affects the brain. Um, so that's really what I've been focusing on a lot, just trying to give parents tools for picky eating. Um, and also just talking about the nutritional component of, um, child development and ADHD and autism. So, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> and I think it's interesting that you've had that personal experience with it because you can see it through the lens of other mums and dads out there who are having these challenges right now. And it is stressful. Yeah. It is challenging. It's not easy. It does take that persistence and patience and willingness to keep going. Um, mm-hmm. I'd like to start, first of all, just by asking, what does it mean to be a picky eater? How do parents know if their child is a picky eater? Yeah, so picky eating, I mean, it's such a huge topic. Like, it's so, it's a complex topic. It's there's so many factors involved. Um, so really, it breaks down into two huge, very huge categories. So the main categories being, is there a medical reason or a structural issue in the child? Um, or is it an environmental issue? Um, and the medical issues can be something like um, babies who are in the NICU for a long time. They have a lot of um, issues just from their mouth has become this area of distrust um, because they've had all kinds of tubes in that area. Um, and then there's the, you know, issues with feeding tubes. Uh, there's all kinds of medical issues. And then there's tongue ties and high palates. There's just the medically involved child and like the medications that they are and how that um, affects your appetite. Um, and then I think I would also put autism related and um, extreme sensory issues in that category as well. Um, and then the other side of the spectrum would be um, children with picky eating behaviors that are really due to the environment um, around feeding. Um, and that's really where I spend a lot of my time talking about because I think this is really on the rise. Um, I was going to say in our country, but <laughs> I guess everywhere in our fast paced environment. Um, so I think that's really where I'll probably spend most of my time talking about today. Mm. And so it, do you think it's because of this fast paced environment and because we're trying to find something that's really convenient and we can just get into some bad habits that kids are fussy eaters or, um, I suppose it's a combination, but also like the sensory sensitivities and that sort of side of it as well. I think yeah. it's common for kids on the spectrum. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, for in general, the age of three to four is really when a lot of these picky eating behaviors tend to surface. 
<clears throat> so it's really this normal physiological process that children go through. Um, and I think a lot of people don't understand that. Um, so I'm not really talking about specifically autism right now, but um, just um, kids in general, they go through like a very, just a phase that they just become really picky. And that just is just because they're becoming more independent. They're becoming their own individual and they're developing more of their own palate and different tastes. Um, but there are, there's all kinds of uh, contributors um, in the environmental um, issues area that I would like to talk to you about. <laughs> um, it's not a huge list, but there's really about four or five things that usually um, like the main contributors to how these things develop and then sort of stay an issue uh, past that normal three to four years old age range. Mm. Can we explore those? Yeah. Yeah. So um, one of the biggest, hugest things is like what we already talked about is um, stress. Um, just is the mealtime environment, is it, a, is it a positive experience or is it a stressful environment? Um, and that's really where I had a lot of aha moments um, for myself um, with my own children was that I realized that um, mealtime had become this stressful environment because, um, first of all, I didn't realize that he was just in this picky eating phase where he was just deciding what kinds of foods he liked and didn't like. And secondly, the more that he refused certain foods, the more that I stressed and pressured more like pressured him and uh, bribed him to eat certain foods. And um, that was, is like the number one thing that I learned in the course that you shouldn't do with picky eaters. So um, we really, first and foremost, when we look at picky eating, we look at the caregiver, the main caregiver that is with the child um, is, is this person's stress, whoever it may be. Um, whether it be a mom or a grandma, um, is this person um, stressed? Are they going through a hard time? Um, and then how are they how are they dealing with uh, food refusals and all of that? Um, so you really, really, really want to make sure that mealtime is a positive experience, and that can be hard to do. Um, but hopefully, I'll give you guys some tools to. Um, to combat that stress. Um, but also, yeah, the, it's just that we live in this, this fast paced environment and um, people are just not sitting down as a family and having like a real meal anymore. Like we used to, um, we used to be sort of around all different kinds of positive role models for feeding um, that could literally show you how you're supposed to eat certain foods. And, um, even with my own kids, you know, I just get so busy and I'll make my kids their own food and then I won't actually sit down, um, because I'm so busy, but I try to make a point to, um, so modeling is huge is what I'm trying to get at. Kids learn so much through modeling. We know this as OTs. They literally look to us to see how to do a skill. So, um, eating the same foods as, um, your child eating and doing that with them is so huge. And a lot of times just parents just are missing this step. It's so big. Um, you have to, kids have to literally watch you eat these foods to figure out um, how to eat them, um, how to pick it up, how to chew it. Um, all of those different things are so important. 
Um, so I guess that was sort of the environment um, component of it. But another component that is big is just a lack of exposure to different like textures and um, a wide variety of foods early on in life. Um, so babies, like as young as eight months old, they really learn through mouthing items. Um, and this is really a critical period where we need to offer a wide variety of textures. And by that, I mean foods that are crunchy, some foods that are soft, um, mushy, lumpy, cold, hot, um, et cetera. Um, so by 18 months, children should really have anywhere from 100 to 200 healthy foods in their diet. And that kind of blows me away just to think about um, how many children that I encounter as an OT in the clinic who don't even really have um, chewing skill, like normal chewing skills at that age. And um, this is a whole nother topic, but I think a lot of it is just that parents um, do a lot more purees than they used to. So they're not exposing children to a wide variety of textures early on in life. And that uh, certainly contributes to this. Um, fear of the unknown. I mean, they just don't know what new textures are and what they feel like, what they taste like, how to chew them. Um, so that's huge. Um, and one of the biggest barriers to this is um, that parents just don't want a mess. So they don't want to allow their babies. I think people are really catching on to this concept and, you know, baby led weaning. I don't know if you know what that is in Australia. You've heard of it. Okay. Um, so I, I think a lot more parents are choosing more to start their kids on uh, or their babies on softer table foods, which is great. But um, some pediatricians and some parents are still um, doing purees just a lot longer than they should. Um, I recommend just only if you are going to do purees just to do them for maybe at the most two weeks just to make sure your child doesn't have any food allergies um, and then move on to soft table foods. Um, so that is a huge, uh, factor. Can I ask what are soft table foods? Yeah. So soft table foods is just like, well, I just did a podcast the other day on how to introduce solids to babies. But, um, so what I recommend is just to start your baby off just with, um, eating kind of the same foods that you're eating, but just breaking them into, um, different uh, components that a baby can handle. So if you're eating, say it's a, I don't know, chicken soup, you would take out the soft carrots that are in it and the soft uh, chicken that's in it. And then you could even put the broth in uh, a cup and you could help the baby uh, drink it, obviously, because um, they're not going to spill it everywhere. Um, so yeah, just uh, I've actually got a list of like my top favorite nutrient dense uh, first foods to start babies on. Um, but things like salmon, I mean, it's super soft. You can just kind of place it on the baby's tray and they can pick it up and feed it to themselves rather than um, an adult physically pureeing it, putting on a spoon and feeding it to the child. Um, yeah. So mm. Yeah, awesome. You touched on heaps of things there. And I think one of the biggest things for families yeah. is that stress around the dinner table. And I think anxiety definitely goes hand in hand with kids who have sensory sensitivities. 
particularly like you mentioned, like with the textural components or um, it could be a colour issue or a um, temperature thing. Like they might really dislike things that are cold or dislike things that are hot. Um, And so, yeah, yeah, it's it's a massive broad spectrum and it's really looking at what um, the child can cope with. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think it's looking at that. You know, we'll see these behaviours that look like the child's being really defiant and mm-hmm. they might kick and scream. Um, yeah. But really, it's their way of telling us that they can't cope yeah. with three components yeah. of the food. That's the only way they can tell you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And look, yeah, I kick and scream too if someone tried to feed me something that I found really revolting. You know, you do this. Yeah. So it's like this, we've got to look at, it from the child's perspective, I think, and, and think what's going on here um, and how can we help reduce that stress? So yeah. how can families reduce that stress and create a supportive environment around the dinner table? Yeah. Um, well, you touched on uh, sen- uh, sensory issues, which I was also going to ma- mention. But, yeah, a lot of times the child is really hypersensitive to different textures and, and that comes with, uh, children on the autism spectrum, they are, um, they have just a lower threshold for handling new textures, both on their hands and also within their mouth. So we, we, we have to pay attention to their cues instead of thinking they, they're defiant or, <laughs> you know, it, it really boils down to they're, they're afraid of trying this new throat, this new food. And when you look at it from that standpoint, they are literally scared and they're going through a stress response, then we have to talk about how to get them into this calm, um, this calm, ready to eat state um, and not make uh, mealtime this stressful environment. So some, there's some really easy ways that you can do this. Um, but one of the biggest things that you can do is by modeling and sitting down with your child is instead of saying like, try this food, if you're talking about introducing a new food or maybe a food that your child has rejected before in the past, um, a lot of parents will say you, you, you have to try it or um, eat three bites and then you can have this. And that's when a lot of the bribery comes in, um, which is never good because um, the more children are just naturally uh, resistant to persuasion. They just naturally um, think that if you're telling them to do something that it's probably not good. So they're not going to try it. So it actually works against you in that regard. Um, so another way, instead of doing those things, um, is to, uh, talk about the sensory components of the food, talk about the color, talk about the taste, talk about everything that you can literally think of. And we as OTs, you know, this is easy for us because we know so much about, uh, we know so much about sensory integration, but um, even as a parent, I mean, you can look at a, a carrot and if it's a soft carrot, then you can talk about that, that it's soft. Um, it's a little bit sweet. It's orange. What other foods can you think of that are orange? Instead of saying, take a bite, say, talk to them about what it's like. And something that's really, really freeing also is this phrase. And <laughs> it works so well. It's to say, you do not have to try it. Actually, the opposite. Um, say, I can't force you to try this food. Um, this is new food, um, and this is what it's like. 
um, this is what it tastes like and this is what it looks like. Um, and then um, a lot of times what I do, which is super helpful, um, I do with a lot of kids is to use um, a no thank you bowl. So um, I know a lot of kids kick and scream or refuse to sit at the table if a certain food is on their plate. And that comes with sort of this like extreme picky eating category. But um, so with that, what I do is I have this bowl on the, on the table right next to the child's plate and any foods that they do not want to eat, that is okay. And you have to accept that because you are not in control of your child. You cannot literally force them to eat anything. Um, but you can say, if you don't want that food, um, you can put it over here in the no thank you bowl. Um, and just by them seeing that food with their eyes, it might seem such like a, such a small thing. Um, but that's the very first step to acceptance of a new food is just by seeing it. So if they see it and they, it was on their plate and then they touched it. So that's the second step to acceptance is being able to touch the food. Um, so, and they put it in the bowl. Um, we've already got them interacting with the food in two different ways. Um, and don't give up on offering that food again, just because they put it in the no thank you bowl, um, offer it again and they can put it in the no thank you bowl again if they want to. Um, which to me now it seems so normal, but I can see how this might seem like a foreign concept to a parent. Like, why would I waste this food or, you know, but kids have to get used to foods before they're actually going to try it. Cause, um, sensory wise, like I said, you first have to see it. So they accept it on the terms of their vision. Um, and then they start working their way up from there. So if they touch it or if they play with it, there's the next step. Um, and then to touch it on their mouth. And then the last step would be to eat it, um, or to try it. So, um, yeah, it really makes sense. And they really do. If you take the pressure off of them, they are so much more likely to try new foods. Um, and then what else was I thinking? So some other tips that are amazing for this, just to take the pressure off of both the parent and the child when it comes to trying new foods is to pair these new foods that you want your pair them with preferred food items to, again, take away that stress factor. So that when the child looks at their plate, they see foods that they know that they'll like. Um, so that can just, okay, I don't have to eat this food. I know I see something I like. And then also um, pair um, this new food that you're introducing, pair it with other healthy foods um, that you know your child will eat. Um, a lot of kids, or maybe some kids, um, whatever it is that your child likes, will will eat avocados. So maybe if you're introducing broccoli for the first time, then uh, put the broccoli on the plate with um, what their preferred food. Maybe it's a chicken nugget, and then the avocado, um, which is a food that's healthy for them. You know they're going to eat it. Um, so even if they don't really try the broccoli, you know that at least they will eat something that's healthy for them, and that really takes away. A lot of the pressure um, and then another thing that helps a lot with this is to offer vegetables if you can or offer a vegetable each meal throughout the day some sort of a vegetable um, so that it really just takes off the pressure for both you and the child if your only opportunity for them to um, 
try a vegetable is at mealtime and then they don't eat it at that time, it can, it can become really stressful um, for everybody. Um, but if you know that, you know, your kid already had, maybe it was a smoothie this morning with some spinach in it. And at lunchtime they had some avocados. So at least you're like, okay, if they don't eat this tonight, it's really, it really isn't. It really is not the end of the world. It's not a big deal. <laughs> so yeah. So those are some easy tips to combat that. Fantastic. What I do find a lot with parents is that, um, with the really picky eaters who have really narrow range of foods, um, parents will serve the f- same food that they like every night. So say, for example, they love macaroni and cheese and pe- the parents feel like they've tried everything under the sun, every tool, every strategy, and it doesn't work. So they will just, they will just give their child the macaroni, macaroni and cheese from the box every night because they know their child will eat it. Um, and and they won't try and offer anything else because they don't want their child to go hungry. So they don't want to not offer the food that they enjoy because otherwise they'll go hungry. And, you know, this is really worrying as a parent, I think. Um, how can we break the pattern so we're not just offering the same thing over and over? So you said bringing something else, putting something else on the plate. But I suppose mm-hmm. parents will think that, um, you know, oh, I've tried this and it will, it will just sit there. Is there anything else that they can do? Like, um, any other strategies maybe away from the dinner table that they can be doing during the day to help with that? Oh my gosh. Yes. This is a huge issue. (laughs) This is so big. Um, I talk about it all the time. I'm so glad that you brought it up. Um, I see this so much with all of my friends with, um, i my sister has the same issue with her children who are both like, I would consider them extreme picky eaters. Um, and, um, yeah, the more that you, if you already have an extremely picky eater on your hands and they are telling you which foods that they want at every meal, um, and they're already in this very selective food range, like you said, if they only like macaroni and cheese or hot dogs or, And a lot of the times, these foods are not healthy foods for them. Um, But like you said, the parent doesn't want to have a big fight, um, and they just want them to eat something. So, um, But the more that you continue to let them tell you what they want for their meal, and you prepare that food for them over and over and over again, you're, you're limiting their opportunities to try new food, but you're also... um, you're also kind of taking away opportunities for them to conquer their fear because this is picky eating is really a very much fear based. So you're taking away these opportunities for them to conquer their fears and to uh, start interacting with uh, new foods in some ways. So you said, um, sorry, I'm kind of like reiterating what you already said, but um, so some strategies, like I said, the other ones I already said about offering, um, always offering some kind of a healthy food at every meal. It's okay for them to have macaroni and cheese, but it's not okay for them to have it all the time. And it's not okay to just eat. <laughs> I mean, it is sometimes okay for them to eat macaroni and cheese just by itself. But can you, you have to think of other ways to pair it with some healthy, you know, sources of fiber and sources of fat and protein. Um, so a big thing with this 
is if you're in this very limited food selection, say your child only eats about 15 to 20 foods, if you're in this phase, just first and foremost, just know that it's always, always, always okay to start over. Just take it as a a little cue that you just need to completely start over. (laughs) Um, So take a step back and just the best thing that you can do is just make a list of the foods that your child will actually eat. Um, And a lot of times you'll, you'll think your child is this extreme picky eater, but you'll actually stumble upon like a couple or a lot more foods that um, they will eat that are healthy and try to start incorporating them in with these preferred foods that they like. Um, But also start, there's this term called food chaining. Um, which I'm sure you know what that is, uh, Rhiannon, since you're an OT, um, is where you take the types of foods that your child will eat and you try to start thinking of other foods that are similar to those foods. Um, so you think about things like the color, the shape, um, the texture, um, and you start trying to build upon what they already will eat and you just kind of like slowly work it up from there. And you can even pair these foods like together on a plate. Um, Say we're talking about like blueberries, say your child will eat blueberries, Um, then you can pair it with some peas that are a similar size, um, texture, they're actually really similar, except for the way that they taste. Um, And you can just talk to them about those new foods. And like I said, blueberries are the healthy food on the plate um, that you know your child likes. Peas are healthy too, but um, they might try it, they might not, but at least the pressure is off that you introduced it to them. Um, you're giving them these uh, different opportunities, um, and then you're giving them the opportunity to interact with it in some way. So hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I love that idea. And I think even if um, you take that away from the dinner table, so it's in an environment where maybe they're outside on a picnic rug under a tree and there's absolutely no pressure to eat it Um, Mm -hmm. and maybe they get out their um, toothpicks and they start, you know, making a little tower. If they're into construction, you know, what are their interests? What are they motivated by? And they can make a little tower of peas and blueberries and and construct this tower. And it's just, again, like you said at the beginning, they've got to be comfortable touching it, smelling it. Um, you know, maybe squishing it in their fingers before they even get comfortable putting it in their mouth, squishing it in their mouth, tasting it, you know, that is a lot more of a sensitive area. So um, I think if we can build up that tolerance and get that positive relationship with the food before we sit them at the table and expect them to eat it, I think can be a really um, good way to integrate it. Yeah. So yeah, you, you made such a great point. So um, and it's something that I completely forgot to talk about, but um, making food more of a game instead of, or, or new foods, um, letting them interact with it um, in a way that's not even, uh, not even in a, an environment where they're expected to eat it is amazing. I mean, you can make all kinds of games out of foods. Um, but yeah, going can outside. Can you give us some examples? <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> So I love those little um, food picks. Um, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Those little, they have like different animal characters on them. Um, 
So you just like poke them. You could put them into like berries or carrots and you just kind of like make a game out of like poking with them and then other foods that you or other games that you can play is just, which I'm not sure if other parents that are not OTs like us would actually do this, but it's amazing. Um, or the implications of it are amazing. Like just playing with food in terms of like painting with different textures, um, for babies, you can just literally just like let them play with like sweet potatoes um, because sweet potatoes, sometimes kids don't like that mushy texture. A lot of kids don't like that mushy texture. Um, so just letting them play with it and paint with it. Um, gosh, I should have written a list. I can't think of other ones off the top of my head, but just get creative with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, it is just being creative and just letting like putting like, putting out a whole lot of different textures and different foods and, um, you know, if they're into cars, putting up a broccoli and making that a tree and making them zoom their car. There you go. <laughs> yeah, just little, yeah, little things. And I think parents, to be honest, I think parents come up with the best ideas because they know their kids best. Yeah. They know what motivates them. And I learn off the parents most of the time, to be honest. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's, I, th- I think, where we get all our good ideas. <laughs> yeah, seriously, lots of... I mean, moms are so creative, a lot more creative than sometimes I can be. (laughs) Pinterest is a wonderful place. You can get so many ideas off of Pinterest these days. Absolutely. Um, But just going outside is another thing. Um, And having the food in a different environment, even if your child rejected that food, say at lunchtime, don't throw it away, obviously. Um, But keep it and try again in a different environment. The environment matters so much. So have a picnic outside. They might be willing to try it in more of a um, relaxed setting, like um, having a picnic outside or one of my favorite places actually for kids to try new foods is at the farmer's market. I don't know if you have, is that the same term in Australia as it is here? Okay. (laughs) Um, So at the farmer's market, uh, Kids are just exposed visually and um, through their sense of smell to so many different foods. And it's just a great place where um, it's not necessarily like you're sitting down for a meal, but you're like they have different smoothies that you can try. Um, And it's just a great place where the pressure is off for kids. My kids have tried so many new foods at the farmer's market. So. Oh, they love it too, don't they? Like, you know, dipping yeah. their finger in different sauces and it's novel. Yeah. And I think that's it. It's keeping it novel and it's not the same yeah. thing that the pressure is off. What about yeah. kids who, um, this is a very common issue, kids who have, must have everything separated on their plate. So the peas can't touch the carrots and the carrots can't touch the corn and the corn can't touch the meat. Um, you know, this yeah. is common. Why is this? And secondly, what can yeah. parents do to help their child with this? Yeah. Because at home, it's okay. It's a controlled environment. We can work with that. When they go to school or when they go to a friend's house, it becomes a lot harder. So what can parents mm-hmm. do to help their child with this? Yeah, it's a huge issue for kids. Um, but I don't really like to think of it so much as an issue because we have to understand mostly that Kids have to understand what a food is and accept that specific food on its own before they're ever going to be willing to have it mixed up in this like, like casseroles are like a huge example for me. So they're not going to eat a casserole if they don't accept those individual food items on their own. So it's just like an overwhelming uh, thing for them because there's so many things. They don't know what it's going to taste like. They, 
you know, it's just too overwhelming. So a lot of times um, it is helpful just to break down um, if you're serving a, a, a meal, say it's taco night or casserole or even soup, just to take out those individual components and break them apart at first. Um, you're, you're right. It does become this issue like when you're out in a public place. But in the beginning, um, just to teach those individual components on their own, it's really important to deconstruct, say, taco night and put the beef in one area, the cheese, the guacamole, the rice or whatever into different categories. Um, and then once your child has accepted those foods on their own, then, of course, you want to start talking to them about um, will they like to mix it together. You can say things like, oh, we're having taco, t taco night tonight and, and give them back the control. You always want to give them back the control and say, um, we have taco shells or you can put it into a bowl and you can, you can pick which kinds of which foods you want to put on top of your uh, rice or whatever. Or if you want, you can still keep them all separate. You know, you have to give them that choice. Um, but most of the time you'll find that once they've already mastered those foods on their own individually, then they're more willing to um, accept them as a mixed texture. Um, so they'll be more willing to try something like a taco bowl or a Buddha bowl that's like got a lot of different foods all together in one. Yeah, it's massive, isn't it? And these little kids, they're still working out the world around them and still working out how everything fits in and, you know, with their mouth, which is so sensitive. Um, so we do need to take that pressure off and, yeah, yeah see, see where they're coming from. I did want to ask you, you talk a bit about shared control and I'd like to ask you what this concept means and why it's so important for mealtimes. Yeah, I was actually just thinking about when I was talking about the other thing. Um, yeah, so control is another issue that literally comes up so much with picky eaters. I know that I did for myself. Um, so when we think about mealtime and control and food choices, um, first and foremost, um, for those parents that we already talked about that like tend to be these short order chefs for their children, that is a a problem with the parent not realizing that they are actually in control of food choices for the most part. Um, and it's funny because uh, it's funny to me because <laughs> I'm sort of the opposite, but um, some parents just need to realize that they are ultimately in control um, of making food choices. And that's because they are the adults. They know what's healthy. Um, they can't let their, um, children dictate them to them they can't let their children dictate to them um what is going to be served at mealtime every night um but there's so there's a spectrum so some parents tend to be on this side where they're the child's very much in control of everything and that's not good um but then there's other parents like i used to be um which is more of those the parents are too uh, in control of every aspect of the mealtime environment um, and control uh, really becomes an issue because um, we, like I said, we can't control what our children actually eat. Um, we can only control um, what we're going to offer them and, uh, and what time um, we're going to offer them at in terms of like trying to get kids on a, a mealtime uh, routine or structure. 
Um, and then the children can control what they will actually eat or what they'll actually try and how much. So um, we really want to just try to meet somewhere in the middle um, instead of being too extreme on this, I'm the boss, I'm control, I'm in control of everything. Um, and we don't want to let the kids be completely in control, which actually happens so, so much. Or both of them are very common, actually. So we really want to try to just rein it in and try to meet somewhere in the middle where we... Um, and ways that you can do this is, like, you're in control of what you're going to serve, but, but, help, but let the kids help you with the menu for the week. Um, it's a really good thing to just say, you know, what are your, your favorite meals? What should I make this week? And give them some choices. Should I make spaghetti or should I make tacos? Um, and, and they like that. They like to know what's coming and what to expect. And they like to feel like they're in control too. Um, or if you're making a specific meal that night, say you're making chicken, say I'm making chicken tonight, but I really can't decide if I want to make broccoli or noodles or whatever. Um, and just give them some mealtime choices. And that way you're in control, but they're also in control. Um, so yeah, there's some ways for to help that with that mm. issue. Mm, absolutely. And I think when kids have that sense of control, like anyone, they're more willing to try. They're more willing to, um, because they've had that involvement with it. So the more exposure, the better. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, kids, even from an early age, I mean, babies, I mean, they need autonomy. Um, they need independence with feeding. And it's so important. Um, kids don't like to feel like they're not in control. <laughs> we know this so much as OTs. They like to be in control and that's okay because so do I. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I might start to wrap it up now. We have just had just so many um, different tips and tricks from you to use around the fussy eaters and the mealtime strategies. Is there anything else you wanted to cover that we haven't covered before we start to wrap it up and head to the five rapid fire questions? Um, oh my goodness. I didn't, well, I have my really easy, I tried to make like a really easy list of just a place for parents to start um, with picky eaters. So I came up with this five D's to ditch picky eating. Um, and they're all words that start with D, so they're easy to remember. This is a free download on my website that you can go on um, and put it up on your refrigerator if you want to. Um, and the D's are demonstrate, and that's where we talked about modeling and why it's important to actually show um, kids how to eat different food items. Um, and then D is describe, uh, and that uh, is, we already talked about how you um, can talk about the different sensory components and tastes and smells of a different food. And then we talked about deconstruct. Um, is just taking meals apart and then diversify is just offering a wide variety of foods and then desensitize. Um, you know, we already talked about this too. So yeah, if you want more information, I've got lots of tips on that on my website. I love it. I love it. And that's what we need. Just simple strategies that parents can refer to. That's easy to integrate into daily life because yeah, like we said, if it's stressful already, it's going to be hard to implement anything that's going to add any extra stress on top of that. So if it's easy to follow and easy to try and integrate, it's, um, it just makes life a lot easier. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, 
Let's head to the five rapid fire questions. So number one, (laughs) what is one habit that parents can implement today? Gosh, I feel like I already, I don't want to keep saying the same thing. So let me think. The number one would be do do whatever you have to do to make mealtime a positive, stress-free experience. And then remember that bribery is counterproductive with picky eaters. Um, and then I know this is two things, but sit down and or try to as much as you can to physically sit down and eat meals with your kids. Fantastic. Number two, mm-hmm. what do people never ask you that you wish they did? <laughs> I actually had a hard time with this one. I was like, you know what? <laughs> people always ask me lots of different questions. So I was like, I don't know what they don't ask me, but I guess something that I wish they asked me more about is, you know, cause I'm all into nutrition and how it affects the brain. Um, I'm just so interested in, I want people to ask me more of like why certain nutrient deficiencies are so common in children, specifically like iron. Um, you know, why are pediatricians screening for iron as young as six months old. I don't know if they do that in Australia, but they do here. Um, And the reason I feel is that just babies aren't getting enough um, good sources of, of the easily absorbable source of iron as, uh, as babies. And also breastfeeding mothers are just kind of deficient in that, that uh, area as well. Um, So um, and a lot of purees actually have most, they're mostly fruit and vegetables, which are, you know, they're carbohydrates. Um, so it's just lacking in that area. And um, I have a lot of, I have like my top 10 nutrient dense foods for babies up on my website somewhere. <laughs> if you want to go look those up and you can kind of see which nutrients are, are in which different foods that I recommend. Okay. Awesome. We will do that. Number three, <laughs> what is what book would you recommend that all parents read? So one of my favorite books, especially for, I was thinking of your audience, and I know that a lot of these kids on the autism spectrum have a lot of these extreme um, sensory aversions to food. Um, so a good place to start is the book called Just Take a Bite. Um, it's easy answers to food aversions and it's written by a pediatric OT. Her name's Lori Ernstberger. Um, yeah, it's awesome. It gives lots of good strategies. Um, and then the actual, a, a course that I took that was so helpful, and this is good for therapists and parents. A lot of parents were in the course too. Um, and this is, I think only in the United States, so I'm not sure. But um, it's called the AEIOU Systematic Approach to Pediatric Feeding. And it's by a speech-language pathologist named Nina Johansson. And I learned, this is where I learned like so much about pediatric feeding and sensory and all of that. Mm, I'll have to look it up. I'll check it out. I haven't haven't heard of it, no. Yeah, it's awesome. Awesome. Okay, so number four, this is exciting one. What is one of your top unfinished bucket list items? Oh my goodness. I have been on my husband to take me to Hawaii 
for since we literally got married <laughs> and now we have two kids so it's like I don't know when we're gonna get to do it but, um, <laughs> when they're 21 maybe someday yeah <laughs> no I'm like I'm like pushing him like when we we're nearing sometime soon our 10-year wedding anniversary so um yeah I would love to go to Hawaii <laughs> awesome number five if you could only offer one piece of advice to parents what would it be um, well, regarding picky ears, the biggest piece of advice would be to do your best to relax. I know it's so hard to do, but try not to worry if your kids like decide to eat the new food that you're introducing. Um, and just remember that you're exposing them to new foods, then you're doing a good, you're doing a good job, whether or not they eat it, that's really up to them. Mm -hmm. And then remember that, like, um, I didn't mention this, but it's really big that um, foods, um, take somewhere, anywhere from 10 to 15 trials before a child will actually take a bite or eat a new food. So just keep that in mind. Mm. Mm. That is good to know. And that's motivating because, you know, parents will offer so many times and like, nah, I'm not even going there again. And sometimes you have to come back to it again, you know, give it a break. Yeah. Come back to give it. Give it a break. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes giving it a break is a really good thing too. Don't offer it the very next day because that's not going to be good. <laughs> awesome. Ashley, how can everyone find out more about you and your work? Um, so I have um, my website is helpinghandsot.com. Um, and that's if you're looking for resources uh, for picky eating, or like I said, I write on a lot of other topics as well. Um, I've got some good stuff on ADHD too. Um, and then on Instagram, my uh, name is Hel Helping Hands OT. And uh, also, a lot of my work and some of my unpublished that's not on my website is on um, a website that I am a freelance contributor to. It's called Motherly. It's like an online parenting magazine. Um, so, some of my work is also on there. Awesome. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us on the Home Base Hope podcast. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I have learned a lot as well. Um, oh, always learning. <laughs> always learning. Always learning. <laughs> See you, Ash. Okay, bye. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in today. I really hope that parts of the episode resonated with you. But more importantly, I hope that you feel inspired to take action from home base. If there is someone who you know who would benefit from this podcast, please share it with them. Now, I love connecting with you all. So if you head on over to Facebook and Instagram, you can find me there. All you have to do is search home base hope. Now, if you subscribe to this podcast by heading to iTunes and hitting the subscribe button, every fortnight you will get an instant notification of the latest interview. And if you do love the show, then please leave a five-star review because this will help more people discover us and it will help us inspire more positive change in people living on the spectrum. So until next time, I encourage you to open your mind, respect the differences, and above all, believe that you can make a difference from home base. See you soon, guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. 
Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.